The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Support for this activity is provided by an independent educational grant from Eurovant Sciences Incorporated. And thank you all for joining us today at live from AUA 2022 to talk about currently available agents for overactive bladder, as well as third line therapies and the current data regarding outcomes to facilitate proper patient counseling. My name is Dr. David Ginsberg. I'm a professor of clinical urology and director of FPMRS at the USC Department of Urology in Los Angeles and I am pleased to be your moderator for today's discussion. I'm here today with three outstanding faculty members. Dr. Ann Cameron is the James Monty Legacy Professor of Urology and Associate Chair of Safety and Quality at the University of Michigan. After completing her medical degree at the University of Ottawa and residency in urology at Dalhousie University, she came to the University of Michigan for a fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Cameron remains at the university where she is an active clinician and participant in several research trials, including the NIDDK funded LURN. Her clinical interests include complex incontinence, female urethral disease, and the care of patients with neurogenic bladder. She also has a strong interest in medical education and is the Associate Fellowship Director. Dr. Sarah Linher is an Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Utah. She is a board-certified urologist who focuses on female incontinence and management of neurogenic and non-neurogenic bladder dysfunction. She received her medical degree from the University of Chicago and did her residency at the Leahy Clinic. She completed FPRMS Fellowship training at the University of Michigan and has a master's in health services research with a long-term research goal to better understand management of patients with neurogenic bladder. Dr. Eric Rovner is a professor in the Department of Urology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. He is the director of the section of voidiness function, female urology and urodynamics in the department. He is a past president of SUFU and his research interests include the study of voiding dysfunction, urinary incontinence, neurogenic bladder, and genitourinary reconstruction. Welcome, Drs. Cameron, Linher, and Rovner. Okay, so why are we here today? It is estimated that up to one in six adults have overactive bladder. Symptoms of overactive bladder include urinary frequency, urinary urgency, and urgency urinary incontinence. And I just wanna make a distinction between the urge to void, which is a normal sense of having to void, and urgency, which is that sudden and often uncomfortable for patients need to feel like they have to use the restroom immediately. And we know that the quality of life of overactive bladder patients can be significantly impacted by these urinary symptoms, and that up to 70% of patients will experience some degree of improvement with the various treatments we have for overactive bladder. 
That's the good part. However, many patients don't get started on these treatments, which include options such as pelvic floor therapy and oral agents such as anticholinergics and beta-3 agonists. And if patients are started on therapy for overactive bladder, there can be a variety of issues such as persistence. It is well documented that the long-term continuation rate for oral overactive bladder therapy is suboptimal. There is also a concern that patient expectations may play a role in regard to this issue. And we're gonna talk about that today among other things. Also the issue with side effects. Primary seen with the anticholinergic class of medications, and these side effects include problems such as dry mouth, constipation, and potential issues with cognition. And lastly, a concern is escalation of therapy. What does that mean? So if, if one therapy does not adequately improve a patient's symptoms, further therapy, other therapies are not always offered. Questions regarding this include what is the right therapy for each patient? And when is the time to try something additional or different, such as moving on to a third tier therapy, such as say neuromodulation or botulinum toxin? So let's first start with diagnosing overactive bladder. So Dr. Cameron, we're gonna put you up first. So the AUA SUFU overactive bladder guidelines course discussed overactive bladder evaluation and Dr. Goldman's instructional course, highly interactive case-based discussion of issues in female pelvic medicine focused on streamlined methods to evaluate overactive bladder among several topics within the course curriculum. So I have a few questions for you. I'll go through them then I'll let you go to town and answer everything. So. What is the minimal evaluation required to diagnose overactive bladder? What additional tools will you use at times when initially evaluating someone with suspective overactive bladder or possibly later after initial therapies have failed? So for example, do you use any questionnaires in your practice? And if you do, different kinds of questionnaires that we use. Is it one that's more focused on evaluating symptoms or more evaluating quality of life and the impact of quality of life. And if you do use these questionnaires, do you continue to use them when patients follow up to look for the response to therapy? And lastly, when, if ever, do you decide to use additional tools such as voiding diaries, evaluation of post-void residual urinflow, urodynamics, and cystoscopy? All right. Um, I'll try to answer all of those for you. So when, when you meet a patient and they have symptoms suggestive of overactive bladder or, or avoiding concerns, I think you really need to start with a good history. The symptom that is the core of an overactive bladder diagnosis is urgency or urgency incontinence. So someone needs to have that symptom to be accurately diagnosed with overactive bladder. But it's also important to, to judge the, how this symptom started. What's the progression of their symptoms? Did it start all of a sudden or is it something that's progressed over time? And if it's something that started all of a sudden, uh, getting a history of the medical details surrounding that is also very important. Did they start a diuretic the first day that they had this urgency? So you really need to dive into the symptoms and the symptom progression. I think it's also important to get a good pelvic health history uh, parity, genitourinary surgery, any bothersome bulging, a UTI history. So, so much of my evaluation actually centers around just asking the patient about their symptoms, 
also getting a clear history of things that make their symptoms worse versus makes their symptoms better. A lot of overactive bladder patients will clearly describe triggering events. So running water, um, hearing the front door open, jingling their keys, that'll trigger an urgency episode. That's classic um, urgency and overactive bladder symptoms. But you also have to be more broad-minded when you're evaluating someone. You do have to rule out other conditions that can cause urgency that are not overactive bladder because overactive bladder is these symptoms in the absence of other pathology. You have to rule out a urinary tract infection. A urinalysis is a great start. I always do a urinalysis on someone presenting with lower urinary tract symptoms. And that urinalysis can also screen for hematuria. Um, so that's a bare minimum as well as a post-void residual. I also, as a bare minimum, uh, do a pelvic examination, either a, a female pelvic examination or a digital rectal exam, as well as a general neurological exam, uh, seeing how well someone is able to move and walk to screen for occult neurologic injury, which you also are screening for in your history. So you want to rule out things that, that are not overactive bladder, um, rule those out of your differential diagnosis, and then you're better able to make a diagnosis. Um, so I think your, your other question was, what other um, testing modalities do you do beyond the basics? Because what I just covered was the basics, the bare minimum that you can use to diagnose overactive bladder. There's not always certainty after you do that history and physical exam. And so there are instances where more is needed. For example, if someone has microhematuria and lower urinary tract symptoms, they need a cystoscopy. They need a microhematuria workup. You have to rule out bladder malignancy, carcinoma in situ can cause urgency symptoms. So that definitely needs to be ruled out. I often use symptom scores. Those are actually part of my uh, basic evaluation. Um, and I use the AUA uh, symptom index score for both men and women. I also use an incontinence a symptom index that covers stress and urge and bother and pad use. And um, I also like to use the either female or male guppy score that covers questions surrounding um, interstitial cystitis type symptoms, because again, those are very overlapping symptoms. I don't think someone needs to use all of those surveys, uh, but again, I use them all uh, in my practice because I find them all to be very helpful because I see a lot of people with overlapping symptoms. And again, those surveys can be extraordinarily helpful when you're following someone's treatment response. It's very difficult for anyone to remember symptoms historically. How much urgency did you have three months ago? How much frequency did you have three months ago? People don't remember. Uh, they remember worsenings and improvements, but having objective scores of how often they had nocturia is really, really helpful. Again, whenever there is uncertainty, I will also move on to other testing modalities. Very cheap and easy things include avoiding diary, um, having the the patient record what they drink, when they drink it, how much, and record their urine volume, their urgency and leakage um, for three consecutive days is really invaluable. If someone is complaining of nocturia in particular, you can calculate how much urine they're making at night and find out if they have nocturnal polyuria. Also, people sometimes have a hard time guesstimating their nocturia, guesstimating their frequency. They may say, I 
have nocturia times five, but when they present you with a diary, it might be a different number because people tend to remember the worst. And Learn actually did some work in patients with LUTs and looked at voiding diaries in a thousand individuals. And again, most people were pretty good at guesstimating their frequency in their nocturia, but people who had very severe uh, reported nocturia actually didn't have as much nocturia as they thought they were probably reporting their worst their worst time. And again, it's important because then you have objective data surrounding that. Um, again, a Euroflow can sometimes be helpful, uh, particularly if someone has obstructive type symptoms, either a male or a female. But again, men have a prostate and there can be the confounding BPH diagnosis. So I often use a Euroflow in my male patients because it's important to know how good their flow is. And if you're screening them for BPH, I'm also doing a digital rectal exam. Um, and again, you, you progress through these um, more straightforward testing. And um, I often reserve urodynamic studies for treatment failures. It's pretty uncommon that I meet someone with urgency or urgency incontinence and proceed direct to testing. Um, I would often uh, do a trial of medication or physical therapy and conservative measures and, and have them assess that response before moving on to your dynamics. But there's always those people where something isn't right. Something doesn't add up in the history or you're concerned about other pathologies. And at that time, I might move uh, ahead earlier with your dynamics. But usually I, I do uh, some treat several treatments before moving on to your dynamics. That's great. Thanks, Ann. I, I think you, you hit on some really important points. And I think one of the ones that is important is we see overactive bladder in both women and men. And, and, and don't just assume that all male LUTs are BPH. And you know, I think your, your point about the diary and having right what patients intake is important because you'll, you'll see these patients that have frequency and they have five cups of coffee a day and a bunch of iced tea and orange juice and Dr. Pepper, and they're filling themselves up with ca caffeinated products, which you know that could be an easy fix that has nothing to do with medication. I mean, so it's, it's a really nice, important point. Thank you. And another, uh, I another thing, I, oh, go ahead, Eric. I, I think I, I want to emphasize uh, what Ann talked about with the diary, but but also in, in, in the world of overactive bladder, we, we sometimes forget nocturia and, and with the overactive bladder uh, uh, complex, a significant portion is nocturia, but then there are patients who, who, who really have nocturia as their most bothersome symptom. And, and to Ann's point about the importance of a diary, without a diary, you can't really, um, uh, Call out who's got nocturnal polyuria uh, or even polydipsia uh, as a contributing factor to their overactive bladder symptoms. So I think uh, to, to tackle this condition effectively, um, uh, it's uh, I, I, I use a diary more often than I don't, even when uh, I'm seeing the patient for the first time. Uh, so I, I, I find them to be extraordinarily helpful in my practice. And even though it's not part of the AUA guidelines uh, as, as mandated, uh, uh, at the initial evaluation. I find it incredibly helpful uh, in my management of patients. Uh, and and to, to use this simple statement that uh, my patients, uh, uh, clinicians will, comp will, 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 uh, will criticize the diary as saying that their patients won't be compliant with the diary. I find that to be more often than not, not the case. Uh, patients who invest in, in doing the diary uh, and invest in their own health um, uh, do uh, uh, do actually complete the diary and are quite compliant. Uh, so uh, I, I think a, a diary, in my estimation, is a critical part of, of what we do in voiding dysfunction. 
and especially overactive bladder. Right. And, and for those, I think for, for those folks that have trouble getting their patients to do a diary, it's worth it just to spend some time educating your nurses and let them do the education for the patients. We don't want to spend that, but our nurses do that in our office. And, and to your point, and I think I would assume for all of us, when a patient comes in, their primary complaint is nocturia and not really urgency and everything else is fine. None of us are giving them medication. They're going home with the instruction to do a diary and we'll see you back with the diary because you're probably having nocturnal polyuria or you're drinking too much before you go to bed. And it's that simple. So let's and move on. Um, on Friday, there were there were several debates on Friday during the SUFU session that focused on optimal oral therapy and third line therapy for overactive bladder. So, so Dr. Linder, I'm going to give you, uh, just like with Anne, a list of questions and I'll, I'll let you, you uh, go and answer those. So what is the difference between behavioral therapy and pelvic floor physical therapy? And then, so none of, we all love physical therapy. We're all sending our patients to do that all the time. None of us are trained as physical therapists. So how do we, how do you go about offering it to your patients? How do you choose which overactive bladder patients to offer behavioral therapy, physical therapy, or both? And, and do you think there are some patients that are more likely to do better or worse in regards to these therapies? Thanks, David. Uh you know, I, I think that these the, the question of behavioral therapy and the pelvic floor physical therapy um, and pelvic floor muscle training are really two important, por important points of overactive bladder management that are just completely glossed over. Um, and, and we also don't revisit these when we get farther along on treatment. So to, to kind of be basic, the behavioral therapy is really teaching an individual to improve their urinary symptoms by training the bladder to fill and then empty on a regular predictable schedule. Um, so if a patient has urgency at like two hours, I encourage them to go to the bathroom at an hour and 45 minutes or so. They all have um, devices in their pockets or something to bing or ding them. So they, they, there's, there's ways around getting them to hopefully go to the bathroom before they get that urge to go to the bathroom. So we don't want their bladder to run their life. They need to take control of it more like, you know, telling your kid to go to the bathroom before they leave the house. Um, and so then after about a week, if they can spend a week doing this time voiding without that irritating urgency, they can progressively increase um, the uh, amount of time between voids by about 15 minutes a week until they can hold their bladder for a maximum of two to three, maximum four hours, maybe, um, depending on how bad the overactive bladder is. Um, and so that's kind of the, the timed voiding aspect of um, behavioral management. Along with that, then we also advise patients to drink the same volume of fluid, preferably water. I tell them water's their bladder's best friend. Um, drink that same volume every day. And so unless there's a significant medical issue, we recommend they not drink any more than 64 ounces of fluid a day um, and try to kind of have that uh, distribution of the fluid come in at a regular interval um, and not just sit there and chug back like the huge container that a lot of people are walking around with for dietary purposes and things like that. Um, this is really tricky to teach patients. Um, I know a lot of large urology groups often have an OAB um, nurse or PA, APP um, 
champion that can facilitate OAB pathway treatments to remind patients about this. But I don't have such a person um, in my practice. Um, but if I have a patient who I think can handle electronic reminders, I send them actually to the SUFU My Bladder app that's available um, both for Android and iPhone. It's, it's in the app store. It's called My Bladder. And it was developed by us, SUFU members. And it's an it has um, electronic resources about how to do behavioral therapy, uh, how to do time voiding. And you can set alarms uh, on there and it can, it can tell them you know, to void at you know, an hour and 45 minutes. Um, and then they can progressively change that. There's actually an electronic uh, bladder diary that's available in there that they can export to PDF. Um, and reminders to stop fluids in the evening for their nocturia, those types of things that are available um, uh, electronically. And so if I feel like I have somebody that um, can handle those types of uh, reminders, I'll send them to, to that resource. I have it downloaded on my phone um, and I show it to them and they, they're like, oh, wow, okay. Um, the other thing I do wanna add into behavioral therapy is really recognizing constipation. Um, uh, if I could put billboards up on the interstate that said, have you pooped today? I would, um, but I don't think I'm allowed to. Um, I think that recognizing what normal bowel regimen is, uh, is really important for these patients. And, and I'll have many patients that come in that they poop regularly and they're only pooping once a week or they're pooping five times a day, but it's small rabbit pellets. Uh, and so really recognizing that they need to have one to two soft bowel movements per day is regular and optimal for helping the bladder. Um, and they get a little bit weirded out when they have these conversations with me uh, when they wanna talk about their bladder, but I actually redirect them to their issues with their bowels. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the other part. Um, for pelvic floor physical therapy independently, like at home, if I have somebody who I feel like is um, uh, able to be coachable on a physical exam, I'll have them practice a Kegel uh, squeeze. But really, that's I find that's the limitation of pelvic floor physical therapy at home or pelvic floor muscle exercises at home is being able to just do that pelvic floor squeeze. It's very hard to teach patients to relax their pelvic floor on their own. Um, and so that is the kind of the goal here is to have them have better control of their bladder to prevent leakage with those exercises. But David, like you mentioned, we're not pelvic floor physical therapists. Um, and so oftentimes to get a patient to really coordinate their, their, their pelvic muscles with voiding, I, um, I do send them to pelvic floor physical therapists. Um, I start that off by introducing the concept of a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I say, these are physical therapists that are trained to help you with your knee, but they have dedicated their entire practice to really helping people with issues in this pelvic area. And I point to the pelvic floor and, and everything. And I say that these are just really, they're great allies in helping overactive bladder management. Um, I explained that for a first visit, oftentimes they'll only talk to the patient um, and get to know them. And then the second visit, they often will do a pelvic exam um, and a really 
feel the muscles and help starting to coach the patient through these things. If I have somebody who's not comfortable with a pelvic exam, it's a big challenge. And sometimes it's a non-starter or they really have to find the right therapist that they connect with. And they might need two or three visits before they're willing to let a physical exam happen. Um, the um, Regionally, I think there's a very large variation in pelvic floor physical therapists that we have available to us. In my region, I have a list for Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, and Montana, because I'm sending people out to physical therapists in all those areas. Somebody might just have a physical therapy list for their area, but um, it's really beneficial to build a, a list of pelvic floor physical therapists and um, send the patients out and, and start getting feedback on those physical therapists. So you can actually offer up those resources as an actual list. Um, your next question, David, was how, choosing, you know, how are we gonna navigate which one of these treatments we're gonna offer? And so I really find that it depends on a stepwise indication and where those opportunities are. Um, some people are like, well, I'm perfect with my fluids and I'm perfect with my time voiding, but I still have to pee, you know, 100 cc's every hour. And, and so there's not so much you can do with their fluid management if they're not drinking that much and, and their time voiding can't be, you know, there's, there's only so often they can be in the bathroom. So you kind of have to identify where your big wins are going to be. Um, and then, you know, maybe pelvic floor physical therapy might be a, less of a lower yield, um, uh, a lower yield opportunity. Um, who does best with these different types of therapy? I think it really depends on cognition and motivation. Like Eric was mentioning, if you give somebody a bladder diary and they do it, they're probably a really highly motivated patient. And they might be very successful with next line therapies and doing their pelvic floor physical therapy. But um, if they're just kind of doing it in the waiting room, which many of our patients do, they fill out that bladder diary in the waiting room, uh, it, it's not gonna be, they, they might not be as dedicated to certain types of really intensive treatments that they need to do on their own, like physical therapy, time voiding, um, things like that. Great, thanks, Sarah. You know, I think your comment about bowels are, is very important. Um, and it's also important we're going to talk about it shortly is that some of the medications that we are giving for overactive bladder actually make the problems with the bowels worse, which then is just potentially exacerbating the problem. Just, so, to, just to add one more one more thing, uh, uh, Sarah, I, I, I live in the seventh fattest state in the United States. Uh, do, you, do you counsel patients on, on weight loss as well? I don't think that's as big a problem in Utah as it is it's not as big of a deal out here, but you're right. You know, recognizing that, and I have a, I have a, a, a treatment pathway that, um, you know, I was given by Una Lee many years ago, and really talks about those first line treatments, also along with uh, smoking and other bladder irritants um, that that are less prevalent for me uh, in Utah. We have a low tobacco and low caffeine usage, although Red Bull is pretty popular. All right, so before we move on to oral therapy, one last pelvic floor therapy question. So, so Anne, in, in your instructional course titled Managing Patients with Complex Voiding Dysfunction, was the use of pelvic floor therapy in patients with neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction discussed? And any thoughts on which patients with neurogenic bladder may actually benefit from pelvic floor therapy? Sure, good question. 
And again, um, we don't often think of the neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction patient as benefiting from pelvic floor physical therapy, but there are certainly patients who do. Those patients who void volitionally, uh, your multiple sclerosis patient, your post-stroke patient, your Parkinson's patient having OAB symptoms can certainly get a ton of benefit. And physical therapists don't just teach pelvic floor exercises. They are trained in teaching time voiding. They are trained in teaching uh, fluid management and the behavioral therapy. So they do multimodal therapy and they do a really good job. Um, the uh, the NLETS guideline also does actually uh, recommend that uh, people may offer uh, pelvic floor physical therapy to these specific groups and they can get a lot of benefit. If they're motivated to do it, that's, that's often my litmus test. If someone is motivated to do pelvic floor physical therapy, they're probably going to do great. Great. Thank you. So let's transition over to oral therapies. So Eric, you have an instructional course with doctors Alan Reen and Chris Chapel, which is Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for OAB 2022, Monotherapy and Combined Pharmacotherapy to Optimize Treatment. That really, it's a fantastic course and it covers the gamut of pharmacotherapy for overactive bladder. One of the course objectives is to define the similarities and differences between the various oral pharmacotherapies for overactive bladder. So Eric, can you speak to how these oral therapies are similar? Uh, do you expect to see differences in efficacy between the various therapies or is it really more patient dependent? Yeah, good, good, good question, David. I, I wanna thank uh, my, my uh, uh, co-course leaders, uh, Drs. Ween and Chapel, because some of what I'm gonna say really comes from the talks that they gave. I, I, every year that we've given this talk, I, I always learn something from, from both Chris and Alan. It's, it's a terrific course. Uh, uh, so I recommend it uh, to everybody at AUA. Anyway, uh, uh, similarities uh, uh, are, uh, we'll start off at, at an AUA level, uh, both uh, classes of agents, beta-3s and antimuscarinics, are recommended by the uh, OAB, uh, uh, SUFU AUA, uh, OAB uh, guidelines. You know, the, the efficacy uh, between the agents seems to be rather similar, even when uh, uh, Alan does his uh, placebo drug ratios, uh, all of the drugs seem to uh, have the same uh, ratio of uh, efficacy versus placebo. That is when you, uh, when you correct the placebo response, the efficacy seems to be about the same across the anti-muscarinics and, and similarly uh, across the, uh, the beta threes. Um, the, uh, uh, some newer uh, data that's emerging over the last several years uh, in both uh, classes of agents is actually under the mechanism of action. So we, we look at antimuscarinics and we, we uh, traditionally have been taught about the efferent mechanisms of, of antimuscarinics, uh, that is to say uh, uh, reversible antagonists at the neuromuscular junction of acetylcholine as a mechanism of action. And, and for beta-3s, we're, uh, we're, we're taught about a different mechanism of action uh, smooth muscle relaxation, uh, working in a very similar mechanism to norepinephrine. However, uh, it's emerging evidence, both uh, in vitro and, and, and animal model, and, and uh, even clinically, it would appear that these drugs both work at least in part by an afferent mechanism uh, that is on the sensory side. Uh, and, and that's really interesting. Now, they, they work somewhat differently, um, but, but to, to, to qualify it, um, we, we think about OAB as a problem of filling and storage. Uh, and, and yet, uh, if you hypothesize that these drugs work on a 
efferent side, uh, people are contracting their bladders less than 1% of the day, uh, but they're filling in storage is the majority of the day, even if you're urinating 20 times a day in overactive bladder. Uh, and this, the, the cardinal symptom of overactive bladder is urgency, uh, which is not a efferent uh, phenomenon. It's an afferent phenomenon. And there is some data now suggesting that antimuscarinics uh, may have afferent activity, but now there's emerging data presented at this meeting about, about beta-3s actually also having afferent mechanisms, possibly through uh, a, a, a acetylcholine pathway, but 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 nevertheless an afferent mechanism. So so the, the, both drugs seem to work through, at least in part, an afferent mechanism, uh, even though they work by completely different uh, mechanisms uh, with respect to the receptors uh, that they that they affect. And, and, and uh, your, your, if, if, if we look at similarities uh, between each of the two classes, that is uh, anti-muscarinics uh, and beta-3s, let's, let's start with the beta-3s. E even though there's no direct comparisons between the two currently available beta-3s uh, in the United States, uh, a, a sort of a placebo drug ratio uh, would suggest that the efficacy between the two agents is actually fairly similar with respect to uh, urgency reduction frequency reduction and urgency incontinence reduction. And we could argue about subtle points on each of the studies, but I think from a global uh, view, um, the, the uh, drugs work fairly similarly. And, and the beta threes, also some data from this meeting and, and also last year's meeting about compliance, the compliance, patient compliance uh, with the beta threes uh, seems to be pretty good uh, over the long term, and, and perhaps even a little bit better than the anti-muscarinics, perhaps due to side effects, uh, but, but we could argue that there are other um, uh, uh, reasons why patients seem to be more compliant with the beta-3s, although the compliance long-term is, is uh, overall not terrific with either set, the beta-3s uh, seem to do uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit better. You know, and, and when you look at the, uh, the anti-muscarinics in terms of efficacy, lots of studies over the last 20 years uh, suggesting again that as a class of agents, the the similar there's similar efficacy uh, between uh, these uh, drugs uh, overall. Uh, so I, I don't know that you could select one drug over another uh, based on efficacy uh, data. Uh, but there 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 are some subtleties between the anti-muscarinic agents uh, uh, with respect to drug-drug uh, interactions and and a number of other uh, issues, cardiac issues, and some things. But but in terms of efficacy, I'm not sure you can you can select uh, between uh, between the agents. And then you asked about individuals uh, and drug selection for individuals. I, I think that um, uh, all things being equal, uh, the two classes of of drugs uh, work uh, again uh, similarly. So you you, you can't uh, choose one drug over another in in my estimation uh, for an individual patient based on efficacy. Now, patients come with comorbidities and patients come with, uh, with what Sarah talked about with constipation, uh, and, and that might push you in one direction uh, versus another. Um, and, and they may have a list of drugs that uh, would contraindicate antimuscarinics or increasing the antimuscarinic load. Um, uh, but, but in terms of picking a particular drug for a particular patient, other than patient comorbidities and, and uh, patient uh, preference, uh, and even unfortunately uh, their pharmacy plan, uh, I, I, I don't know that uh, we can predict in an individual patient how one drug will work. And, and, in, and at least in my practice, 
uh, it is a, I, 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 I will give them more than one drug in a class if they choose to continue with drug therapy, if they've not had an adequate response uh, to one drug within a class. And, and there clearly are patients who uh, will not respond to one uh, drug, a beta-3 or an antimuscarinic in that same class, but you switch to another drug. And for whatever reason, uh, uh, pharmacogenomic reasons, perhaps, things that we don't understand, they will respond to a second one. So, so I, I, I don't have a, a, a really good guidance on how to select an individual drug for an individual patient. Unfortunately, we're still in the trial and error phase uh, with respect to that. Right. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the times it's the pharmacy plan that kind of helps make that decision um, and not necessarily certain properties of the drug or specifics related to the patient. Um, you know, that being said, I, I do think there are certain patients where I'm absolutely going to go with a beta three first if I can because of issues like, say, cognition. If you already are on the low road with the cognition, then I think the last thing I want to do is give an anticholinergic. And you know, with Sarah's, we're back. You know, we're your urologists. We're back talking about poop again. But you know, patients that have terrible constipation, and you know, that's just a recipe for failure. I think when we give a medication like an anticholinergic that can cause, often causes constipation to begin with. You know, I, I, I agree 100%, but, but we also, we, we forget when the original AUA guidelines came out, um, before there were beta threes on the original AUA guidelines from 2012, um, we, the, the, the uh, statement was made that we should not abandon antimuscarinic therapy for adverse effects until we try to treat the adverse effects. Uh, and, and sometimes we've, it, it, at least, and, and I'm, partly guilty as well. Sometimes we're early to switch now to a beta-3 from an antimuscarinic without treating those uh, adverse events. Because if the drug works well for the patient, but they, for example, have constipation or they, um, uh, they, they've got some other untoward effect, dry mouth, uh, we're, we're quick to switch uh, to beta-3s. And, and one other comment, Dr. Chapel gave a terrific talk on combination therapy. And, and we, uh, uh, we forget how many drugs we have in this space other than antimuscarinics and beta-3s to treat uh, uh, filling and storage abnormalities in, in men and women. We have antimuscarinics and beta-3s, but we also have alpha blockers for men and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors and PDA5 inhibitors. And he gave a terrific talk on mixing and matching these uh, with many studies showing combination therapy for antimuscarinics and beta-3s, but there's, there's a, a, a myriad of studies looking at various combinations of these agents. And, 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 and we shouldn't forget as clinicians that sometimes we can uh, lower doses of antimuscarinics in combination with other agents. It allows us to, to reduce the antimuscarinic load, adding a second drug uh, uh, and, and using combination therapy uh, for all of its favorable effects clinically. Of course, economically, that sometimes is disadvantageous, but, but from a clinical perspective, com comb combination therapy amongst those five classes, uh, sometimes we, uh, we, we forget how many options we have in urology. No, that, that, that's a great point. Um, Eric, what, one last question for you regarding oral medications. Um, I think one of the key elements of your course discusses setting proper expectations when communicating with patients regarding their OAB treatment and the potential need for further therapy or just expectations of their present therapy. So, so how would you, you counsel 
clinicians in terms of incorporating this into their practice when caring for overactive bladder patients? Um, yeah, it, it goes to what I spoke to earlier. Uh, the overactive bladder patient is they're, they're, they're not one monolith of a type of patient. They, they come with uh, varying degrees of polypharmacy and different degrees of nocturia and comorbidities. And, and as you stated earlier, cognition issues and, and even age. Um, and, and patients also come with different expectations. We, we think, at least we're taught, that patients want to be cured. But by and large, when you actually look at patient expectations, it's not necessarily to be cured. It's, uh, it's to be better. And, and that's, that was shown in, in the, um, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, NIH-sponsored trial published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, comparing um, uh, antimuscarinics and Botox. Uh, even though the cure rates in both of those uh, uh, groups, the antimuscarinic and, and um, uh, Botox group, the cure rates were, were, were pretty abysmal, 20%, 25% in both, both arms, although slightly better with Botox than drug. Patient uh, improvement uh, was on the order of 50 to 60%. So, so clearly there are patients who get happy without being cured in this space. Uh, and, and Linda Brubaker had done some work on something called a saga questionnaire, um, which is a, it's a self-assessment goal achievement questionnaire. That is patients choose their own goal uh, for, uh, for pharmacotherapy, although uh, Linda has used this same technique in pelvic organ prolapse and stress incontinence surgery and even IC. Uh, but but the concept is uh, that we ask the patient what they would like as their outcome, uh, and some some might say uh, incontinence reduction, some may say uh, reduction in nocturia, some might say reduction in urgency. And I think if you if you take that single question uh, to the patient, uh, you 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 have almost more latitude uh, to look at your uh, therapeutic options to try to get your patient to reach their goal. And it, and it might mean different drugs. It might mean an earlier uh, uh, transition to third-line therapies, um, or it might mean weight loss, or it might mean re uh, uh, referral to a physical therapist. Um, but asking the patient what their primary goal uh, is, uh, is I think important in treating overactive bladder. Sometimes you can, you can lose uh, the, uh, the forest through the trees, I think, uh, in, in this condition. No, that's a great point, Eric. Just because a patient isn't perfect doesn't mean that he or she are not very, very happy and satisfied. We don't need to escalate therapy or change therapy at all. Um, it needs to be patient-driven. Um, so, uh, Sarah, two, two questions about, about overactive bladder therapy. Um, were there any um, other different or important conclusions during the debate that occurred on this during the SUFU session? And then to me, I think really more importantly, when you see an uncomplicated treatment naive overactive bladder patient and he or she's interested in pursuing pharmacologic therapy, how do you discuss the options of starting anticholinergics versus a beta-3 agonist with that patient? And, and how are decisions, how do you, how decisions get made? So, so this is referring to the, um, the debate about um, anticholinergics or anti-muscarinics um, versus beta-3 agonists with Dr. Griebling and, and Dr. Chancellor. Um, the, the problem is this, is this is kind of a tough controversy. We're essentially, the way I describe it is we're comparing old apples to fresh oranges. Uh, you know, even though the, the beta-3 agonists were first approved in 2012, it's, we just 
don't have the ability to um, resolve this imbalance of power between these two medications because one class is so much more readily available than the more expensive uh, beta-3 agonists um, uh, to many of our dismay. Um, so, you know, the take-home points that I would say that they made is that anti-muscarinics are more readily available, um, not as cost prohibitive as compared to the beta-3 agonists. Uh, however, there is that higher side effect profile in many patients, and we've talked about a lot of those issues, cognition, constipation, dry mouth, which triggers a whole nother set of uh, compensatory reactions when they're taking those medications. Um, but uh, the beta-3 agonists themselves do have side effects, uh, but different and, and really seem to be cost prohibitive depending on where you are and what uh, payer mix you have for insurance. So um, when I have a patient sitting in front of me about this, I really talk to them about who they live with, you know, any history of falls. I, I just want to make sure that I'm not exacerbating or causing a safety issue if I'm trying an anticholinergic um, and if they are going to have a safety issue that I can identify, I just document that and say that it's medically contraindicated for that patient. Um, and sometimes I'm able then to move on to beta-3 agonists um, if it's not first-line treatment on their payer plan. Um, so again, your, your case that we kind of have, if it's a 60-year-old um, naive, uh, treatment naive, overactive bladder patient, um, I, I really look at those factors about, you know, where they are on their cognition spectrum and, and what sort of, how are they going to be handling the side effects uh, of potentially of the medication. Um, I also take that opportunity when I'm going to start a medication to go back and review their adherence to first-line treatments um, and introduce that, you know, there are these two possible medications um, that we could um, start. The other thing... Um, so, I, you know, insurance is really different across the country um, and what's available. Um, some insurance companies will require an anticholinergic trial first, and so that I have them report back with efficacy and side effects. If I do have to try an anticholinergic, I try to do definitely once a day dosing, uh, not immediate release dosing formulations. Um, and then if I can, I try the quaternary amine that's available, which is trospium extended release, but oftentimes that I find that's cost prohibitive too. The other thing for women, like if this patient that hasn't started medication, but is just on behavioral therapy, the other thing for women is I always um, probably will start at that point or have previously started vaginal estrogen treatment um, because it's really not uncommon um, that a lot of these women uh, postmenopausal have vulvovaginal atrophy and overactive bladder is one of their symptoms presenting with that. And so, um, I, I mean, I have to say, if I start first-line therapies of behavioral therapy, maybe some pelvic floor physical therapy and um, vaginal atrophy uh, and maybe some leg elevation for first-line treatment, I'll have a lot of women come back and say they're greater than 50% improved just with that combination of treatments. And so um, recognizing that their quality of life is, can be so much better with treatment of vulvovaginal atrophy and their bladder symptoms is really important before moving along to those next line treatments. Great, thank you. So Eric, your course also discussed therapies, future therapies for overactive bladder. 
Uh, any thoughts regarding the late breaking abstract that Dr. Ken Peters presented on Friday that looked at gene therapy to treat overactive Yeah, really interesting. You know, David, the holy grail remains uroselectivity. That is getting a drug that only works in the urinary tract uh, and, and not have collateral effects elsewhere. Um, you know, th there are no new antimuscarinics in development. Uh, the two beta threes uh, that were in development, uh, right of Begron and solid Begron, uh, are no longer in development. There's uh, no published phase three. And all the other drugs uh, or, or drugs in development, uh, different pathways, P2X3s and, and uh, TRIP uh, antagonists, NK1s, uh, they, they haven't progressed very well. But what is new uh, is what appears to be uh, gene therapy for overactive bladder. And this was an abstract presented by uh, Ken Peters uh, on Friday at this meeting. And in essence, uh, what this gene th therapy is, it's a a plasmid vector which expresses the alpha subunit of the uh, BK channel, the potassium channel on smooth muscle cells. And, and if you up, uh, if you increase the activity of the BK channel, which presumably by injecting this plasmid vector with an alpha subunit uh, into uh, the bladder wall, you're increasing the activity of the uh, BK channel, the uh, large conductance potassium channel. And that increases potassium efflux uh, from the cell, which hyperpolarizes the cell and relaxes the cell, causes smooth muscle relaxation. And, and Georgi Petkoff and others have, have looked at, uh, at the BK channel and its effects on overactive bladder. Um, but this data was 12-week data in a small number of patients, 74 patients. They were randomized to placebo uh, and two doses of, of this plasmid vector. And this is the 12-week data that was presented. And it was actually, David, it was actually pretty impressive. The, um, both doses uh, low and high dose uh, were significantly improved uh, urinary frequency versus placebo. Uh, the high dose significantly improved urgency uh, versus placebo, and uh, both numerically um, uh, improved uh, urgency incontinence uh, versus placebo. Although it wasn't statistically significant, but uh, and and the AEs, the adverse events, were were minimal with one person uh, with an increased post void residual. So very well tolerated. Um, so, so I, I would say that uh, the, the, the numerical uh, changes, uh, if you use Dr. Wien's uh, placebo ratio, was actually twice the response that we see with drug. And admittedly, it was a small number of patients and admittedly a short-term study. But, but I think this, is, uh, this, this could be, uh, uh, if duplicated in larger numbers of patients and, and substantiated, uh, that this could be a, a new uh, avenue uh, for uh, therapy for overactive bladder in patients, which is uroselective. That's fantastic. Yeah, this is uh, it's pretty exciting for us to have something that would be uh, a gene therapy and, and be very, very uroselective. So, so let's move on to refractory overactive bladder and talk about uh, third tier therapeutic options. Um, Dr. Cameron, uh, your faculty for the complex voiding dysfunction course. I'm involved with refractory overactive bladder course, both instructional courses that discuss therapy for refractory overactive bladder. I think part of the challenge is picking the right therapy for the right patient. We have three options, tibial nerve stimulation, botulinum toxin, and sacral neuromodulation. So Dr. Cameron, just a few questions about tibial nerve, pros and cons, patients that are best for this, patients you avoid, any tips or tricks to optimize doing it in the office, and any, any comments on some of the newer therapies that are available to us now or under investigation? Yes, thank you. So uh, 
PTNS is minimally invasive therapy. Uh, there is little to no risk other than some local ankle symptoms of minor bruising or soreness. So that's very appealing to patients. Uh, many patients are risk averse and they really don't want to place themselves at risk. They don't want to go to the operating room and they don't uh, want to run the risk of urinary retention. So this has none of those uh, side effects. Uh, the downside is um, patients who have pacemakers are not eligible for this therapy. It's a contraindication, but there are otherwise not many specific contraindications that are that are commonly occurring. But those people where the treatment would be cost prohibitive, and, and that would be people who have to travel for a very long distance. Uh, I live in Michigan. If you have to drive for four hours to get your your therapy, which is a half an hour, once a week, times 12 weeks, and then maintenance therapy, that might not be realistic for you. But people who have uh, good transportation or um, can easily make it to your clinic, it can be a great option. Um, again, um, patients who are um, understanding of this therapy, I try to explain it that it's similar to taking an oral agent. You have to continue with the therapy. There's a misconception and many patients stop after 12 weeks because they're better and then they lose their efficacy, and that's because they haven't stayed with maintenance therapy. So I try to uh, create an analogy that it's similar to taking a medication. You have to continue with your therapy to get the benefit. The other thing you have to discuss with your patient is that they're not going to get benefit on the first day. They can't give up after one treatment. We do see some treatment benefits at six weeks, but you really have to make it to 12 weeks to fully assess the therapy. So you have to tell people to exercise patience and not give up. So people who uh, need to be uh, better sooner, that might not be a good option for them. People who live far away, uh, people who don't understand the therapy, and um, and and people who um, really don't want to take time out of their day to do it are probably poor candidates for that. Great, thank you. Um, in terms of your office, who who does who does this in your office? So in, in our offices, we have advanced practice providers, uh, PAs and nurse practitioners who, um, a select group of those. So we have a group of, of not all of the APPs in our urology department, but those who are with our division um, who are all experts in overactive bladder. So these are the same uh, advanced practice providers who help our sacral neuromodulation patients. They see overactive bladder patients routinely. So they are knowledgeable about the full spectrum of overactive bladder. And so uh, they uh, do the uh, needle placement. And again, these patients often have questions. They have um, issues that come up in between. And so I think these are a, a great resource um, to, to do that. And we run uh, tibial nerve stimulation clinic at the same time as regular clinic and, and patients can get this therapy more conveniently because this is a large burden for them. Um, I know you'd asked as well about the advanced therapies. I think that this is uh, really amazing uh, work that's being done. There are multiple devices that are either FDA approved or in the process of, of going through FDA approval. And I think the initial data that was presented at um, this meeting with some posters and podium sessions um, has been very favorable. Again, that location in the body is fairly low risk and uh, it eliminates the inconvenience of the tibial nerve stimulation. And many of these are being trialed as an office procedure under local anesthetics. So your patient who is not a candidate for the OR or simply does not want to go to the OR. There are many people who are healthy, but do not want an anesthetic for various reasons. So I think that this is, uh, this is 
really encouraging work. And I think um, something minimally invasive and, and very effective um, is, is extremely promising. And I think, uh, I think to, to me as, as a human being, this sounds very appealing. Great, thank you, Ann. So Eric, let's move on to botulinum toxins. So, so similar questions, pros and cons of botulinum toxin for a fractured overactive bladder. Patients you think are, are good candidates, things you, patients you think may be suboptimal candidates for this. Um, any tips or tricks in optimizing this in the office? Yeah, quickly just go over a couple of these. So, you know, the, 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 the pros of, of the therapy is that it works well. Um, it, it works in the vast majority of, of people. It's fast uh, and, and it's easy to do. Uh, we're very comfortable as urologists doing endoscopy. The, the cons are really, the biggest con is really, uh, uh, is, is the need for repeat injections and whether that injection is at four months or six months or nine months or even 12 months, um, you need repeated injections. So it's not a one-time uh, fix. Um, and, and then of course, the other cons are risk of retention and, and adverse effects such as uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, with respect to patients in whom I, I wouldn't use Botox, clearly patients who are unwilling or unable to catheterize, um, uh, that those patients are excluded from, from Botox. Um, patients who are unwilling to come back for, for repeat therapy. I think if we counsel our patients appropriately up front and we ask them, are you willing to come back every six months or four months or nine months? Uh, and they say no, then, then that's, they're not a candidate uh, for the therapy. And then some more subtle things, patients with elevated post-void residuals or patients in whom I've done urodynamics on, and that certainly is not, I don't do urodynamics on every patient that I'm about to do Botox in, uh, but in those who I do urodynamics and they've got poor contractility, they need to be counseled that, again, their, their risk of going into retention or needing a catheter either temporarily uh, or, or reasonably long period of time uh, is high. And if they're if they're unwilling to do that again, I, I, I counsel them against uh, Botox. And then the last group is probably the ones that are most controversial. I, I think deep down that if somebody's obstructed and we Botox them, they have a higher risk of retention. So I counsel them against Botox, but I'm not sure that that's true. I think it's true, but I don't know. So somebody who's obstructed or I think is obstructed, I'll, I'll counsel against Botox. Uh, the, 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 um, just to, to give uh, Sufu a plug, there was a great abstract uh, presented this morning from, from um, uh, the uh, Sufu Research Group looking at transvaginal uh, Botox injection um, uh, and uh, preliminary data on a small number of patients looks pretty good. But the point is that patients tolerated it really well. Uh, and for those patients who, who are somewhat skittish about a cystoscopic examination, this might be an alternative uh, approach, although again, preliminary data, small number of patients presented at this meeting uh, from the SUFU research group. So transvaginal injection might be the way to go uh, in the future. Who knows? Clearly, we need we need better studies. And then, um, you know, in, in terms of Botox uh, efficiency in the office or how do you optimize the use of this therapy? I think it's 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 your real it's your office staff, uh, and and that that is the 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 staff have to be comfortable setting the procedure up, taking the procedure down. Uh, scheduling in your office, uh, multiple Botox injections in the same day, I find to be incredibly efficient as opposed to scheduling one in the middle of office hours, schedule them throughout. So the staff becomes very familiar with, with the procedure itself. 
and have a nurse who's a specialist in in, in injections so so they're they're comfortable with the setup and 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 how the patients react to the therapy and then finally my last tip is i i i have a rigid scope in my office that i use for females it makes the procedure much shorter it allows me to do the procedure myself uh, without any assistance uh, so I, I like using a rigid scope in females. Uh, I use a flexible scope in, in, in males. Uh, and again, setting up multiple injections in a day and then having a templated note for your electronic medical records for Botox makes that post-Botox injection period where you're on the computer much shorter if you've templated everything because the procedure really is perfect for templating. Yeah, and it's the same thing every time. And I like to borrow your rigid scope because we just have flexible scopes in our office. And that would be nice to have. Uh, you, you saved one. That was smart. Um, all right. So, Sarah, let's finish up talking about sacral neuromodulation. And again, you know, similar questions, the pros and cons, patients you think are best for this therapy, patients you want to maybe avoid this therapy on, and anything that you do in the office to optimize it. You know, I know there, there are clinicians that are concerned about their lack of comfort with programming and dealing with sacral neuromodulation. So uh, sacral neuromodulation really um, is, you know, provides continuous neurostimulation therapy. And so this can be an advantage over the PTNS treatment. Um, and it's really successful for motivated patients. They determine what programs they like, they modify as needed. Um, uh, so the patients that I find the the benefit is, are those, um, you know, the pros are that we can do it for patients that have imperfect bladder emptying, like the, the ones that uh, Eric is mentioning. Um, so oftentimes this for me nowadays are um, MS patients with detrusor of activity, but incomplete emptying. Um, the other pro is that there's no risk of urinary tract infection. So a lot of uh, our female patients, um, are already uh, having overactive bladder and oftentimes have recurrent infections or that one infection that was terrible and they don't want to have that experience again. And so there's no risk of urinary tract infections with um, trying sacronormodulation and also no risk of retention. Um, and as we know, it's FDA approved for three indications, uh, um, overactive bladder, uh, in, um, fecal incontinence and non-obstructive urinary retention. So sometimes those patients actually bundle into all one patient and um, sacral neuromodulation can be great for them. Um, the cons are that it requires a small surgery uh, to place and um, depending on your practice, if you're doing PNEs in the clinic to trial it, uh, there's ju just one surgery then in the operating room or there might be a staged procedure, but you have that the the benefit is you have that trial period so you're not committed um we do have um rechargeable devices uh available by multiple companies now and also um uh long-term batteries uh that re require uh, can be implanted for a long time and not necessarily need to be replaced potentially ever um but the the cons overall though or is it can require some maintenance to get really sustained efficacy and so this can be frustrating for patients and I think really gets to patient selection. So patient engagement and how technically savvy they are. I have them um, tell me if they can program a new contact into their cell phone uh, as my screening question to make sure that I think that they can actually handle managing the device. Um, 
I also, um, if they can't do that, then I, I try to go for towards more towards PTNS um, with maintenance therapy uh, or Botox if they really qualify. I also avoid the therapy on chronic generalized pain patients uh, and then chronic back, patient, back pain patients. They um, really are not, uh, they, they tend to be bothered by having that, that metal device in their body one way or another. They're still going to blame it on their back pain or something like that. And generalized pain patients just are, are very triggered by a foreign body in, in them. Um, I, for, you know, for the maintenance for the, in the office, um, I, I know that there are many generations of providers out there that are offering this, um, this treatment. Um, first of all, I think the companies that are developing the devices have really done a good job at recognizing that, honestly, the success of their device is dependent on their customer service. And they need to have some ability to do some troubleshooting for patients. Um, and so them being able to call in and take over and do a Zoom call on the newer devices, I think is a big win for helping patient satisfaction and persistence with the therapy. Right now, I have an excellent rep that I can call and she can coach me through tips and tricks that I don't yet know. But that being said, I think that, um, you know, get it's our job to really help um, give a good name to this type of therapy. And as a provider, we should be at least basically proficient and doing some some troubleshooting, some basic troubleshooting in the clinic. And just like we shouldn't expect the patient to set it and forget it, we shouldn't necessarily expect to just set it and forget it and have it run forever also. So, um, you know, I definitely encourage providers and my residents to get some basic training so they can help troubleshoot this and be proficient with it. Um, the other aspect of troubleshooting is really to consider whether the lead is was ever or still is in the correct location. And so I, I have a pretty low um, threshold to go ahead and get an, a plain x-ray of the pelvis, two views, so PA and lateral, to just check where the lead is and make sure it's where it was when it was placed. If I didn't place it, I kind of look at the placement and wonder if it actually was in a good location to begin with. So. Um, I, I think that it, it's our job to really try to um, main, you know, not have this type of therapy get um, dismissed because of the difficulties with troubleshooting um, when providers place the devices and don't know, necessarily know how to treat them. Um, I don't have a nurse champion. Uh, who can troubleshoot this, but there are courses available and many practices I know have nurse, nurse champions and APP champions that are really, really good at doing this. And so just having somebody who can manage that in, their, um, in your practice is really gonna be beneficial to have it be a, a win in your practice. Thanks, Sarah. Those are all important points. And, and I think even even for those, and I think, I mean, I agree with you, it's good to be able to understand how to work the program, the programmer. Um, but as a clinician, if you still are not comfortable, I promise you that your reps will be, if, if, if they will come and program for you. And and what we'll do is, you know, what, what people will do is just say, okay, I'm going to have five of my SNS patients in today and have the rep come. Yep. Go through all of them, and that's a great way to do it. And, and I think most, I'm going to guess the attendees didn't know that one of the take-homes from the OAB course was to talk to your patients about their bowel habits over and over. Because um, to Sarah's point, if a patient has overactive bladder that's refractory, 
and they have fecal incontinence, you should be giving them sacral neuromodulation because you're theoretically going to potentially treat both. And that's an important one. So before I wrap up, anyone have anything else to add on the third tier of therapies? I think you all did an amazing job and a wonderful job kind of talking about that. Any other tips and tricks anyone else wanted to add to that? So one thing that I find important, because many patients would be eligible for any of these therapies, patients who are refractory to oral agents. There are, there are many patients that there's nothing swaying you in one direction or the other. And then you really need to focus on patient-centered care and shared decision-making and really present the patient with their options that are available to them and say, what matters to you? Because patients often have very strong opinions. I do not want a cystoscopic procedure, or I do not want a foreign material, or I don't have time to come into your office. And that should really be the center on the beginning of your, your follow-up discussion, because you only want to offer them things that are going to work within their life and their lifestyle. So I think, uh, barring a contraindication, I think you really need to often start that discussion of what's most important to you. Perfect. I agree with that completely, but I, whatever we do first, I also tell the patients, these options are not mutually exclusive. If you fail one, unless there's a contraindication, the other two will always be available to make sure they realize. I think that's important with the counseling. So Eric and Sarah, uh, thank you so much for your time today to discuss this uh, very important and timely topic. Uh, we did a, a really nice job touching on some very important points, including the evaluation patients with suspected overactive bladder the use of both behavioral and pelvic floor physical therapy, how to optimize the use of oral pharmacotherapy, the importance of managing expectations in regard to improving versus just curing, improving the patient's overactive bladder symptoms, and a really nice and thorough discussion of the third tier therapeutic options for overactive bladder and how these can be op optimally implemented in a clinical practice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.